Buenas noches. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza with Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Brenda Yeska, and myself, Vilma V. I get to be your host tonight. We have a great show planned for you this evening, but before we get started, I want to make sure to thank all our dear listeners and member supporters who gave so generously during our summer fun drive. Didn't quite make our goal, so there's still plenty of time to support this station and support La Raza Chronicles coming to you every Tuesday at 7 p.m. We're going to start with an interview Brenda did with the B-side Brujas, so you'll get to hear all about the hidden punk history behind the B-side Brujas. And then for the second half hour, we're going to set you up for the weekend. We're going to give you the 411 on a brand new film opening up this Saturday at the Roxy Theater, Symbols of Resistance, which is a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement. That'll be an interview with Nina Serrano. And Nina also had the opportunity to sit down with Cherie Moraga and Celia Herrera and talk to them about their new play, The Mathematics of Love, which premieres this weekend. Busy weekend for you. Busy hour planned. Let's not waste any time and start out right now with the B-Side Brujas Collective. Take a listen to this. Yeah. 
to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas, and on tonight's show, we have Bay Area producer and artist Jesse, a.k.a. Marinero, and the Women of Color Collective, B-Side Brujas, April and Toya. Welcome, guys. Thank, Thank you for having you. us. So I'm going to start with Jesse. Tell me a little bit about the projects that you're working on. I know that you're involved with about five of them, right? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what each of them does and what you do in each of these projects. Absolutely. Well, um... Yeah, um, I have, uh, I guess, a main project, which I call Marinero, and uh, it's it's pretty much a solo project where I explore, like, different types of psychedelic music or rock or or bossa nova, or, and then in that I've worked on a project with the Bisa Brujas here, which we've collaborated on, collaborated on, which we put out a mixtape about two months ago, um, which I'm pretty proud of. I think it turned out really well. It was a good chance to work with, with, uh, with the two of them, or the three of them. Um, and I have a project, one of my other main projects is based out of Mexico, or I guess my more, more notable one. It's called Francisco de Madero. And it's between me and this friend from Guadalajara, and we make a lot of sample-based psychedelic music that kind of sounds like like if Perez Prado and like Phil Spector like hung out together. I'm involved in various like punk bands as well. Like I kind of come from like, a, like my background is coming from, I guess, more punk or hardcore or rock uh, background so I have as well as April but we I have a few punk bands with uh, some friends called one called violent change that I play in and one called crisis man I guess there's a few more but those are kind of like the more notable ones that I'm doing on working on right now and are you originally from the bay yeah I'm a, I'm a marine guy so I like to the the, the name marinero is kind of like a play on words just because I'm from Marin <laughs> My dad's from Massachusetts. He's kind of a sailor, and he which got him over here. He like he avoided the draft and sailed here during the Vietnam War, and found some sanctuary in the in San Francisco, and found my Chicana mother, <laughs> met her, and then so I kind of the name is kind of symbolic for both those two worlds. I think meeting Marinero, <clears throat> but I'm a yeah I'm a Bay Area native. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, ladies, how did the B Side Brujas Collective get started? Um. A, a little over a year ago, almost two years ago, our friend Zakia, uh, she's actually in Brazil right now, but she was DJing with a group called Suavecito Soldis. Um, they do a once a month party in Oakland. And so she was DJing with them and then like would do like little solo stuff. Um, but they, Rene Lopez, who is, um, he goes by Tough, he's part of uh, Suavecito Soldis. He kind of approached her or put something out there on social media to get her girls together to start DJing and that there weren't a lot of female faces in the DJ scene, especially in the Bay Area. So he kind of encouraged her and I feel like, and I always tell him this, you know, like he created a monster. Um, and I think because we kind of like have taken over a lot of places now since we've been DJing. So Zakia uh, got us all together. We all know each other through the punk scene. And then we also collected Soul or had a love for Soul or already went to Suavecito Soldis. So she got us together. Uh, we ha- would have listening parties and like little dinners and stuff. And then we started DJing and we got our first start at um, Suavecito Soldis on April 1st of last year. And then we've just been DJing together ever since. 
you keep you guys keep saying punk scene what so do you guys yeah. just want, go to shows or were you guys involved in other bands yeah. and that's how you yeah got to all know each of other? us were singers for bands i'm pretty sure um but i sing for a band um we don't we don't really perform anymore i feel like beside brujas has kind of taken most of my time up um but yeah so we just would see each other at shows or my partner like has known Zakia since they were teens and because they were part of the punk scene in the Bay Area back then. Um, so there's just like a community, you know, of people who either go to shows, play in bands, are part of it in some way. Um, so that's how we all n- knew each other, or got introduced to each other. Your collective just plays purely vinyl, right? Yes. One of my questions is uh, I find interesting is that vinyl is very a very personal thing collecting vinyl. Mm-hmm. So when you go in someone's house and see all their collection, it tells something about that person. Mm-hmm. So how many members are in your band? Or, I mean, in your crew? <laughs> and also, what do each of you collect and what do you <coughs> like to play in your shows? So there's um there's four of us. We started off as a group of five, but uh, you know things happen, and it just it's very it's a very demanding collective. And I think just because we're all so busy, um, so we are a group of four now. It's me, Toya, Zakia, who's in Brazil, and then our friend Mo, who is also a hairstylist, photographer. She does all kinds of things too. And what kind of uh, genres of music do you all collect, or you like to play? I started off collecting punk records, um, so I have like a lot of new wave and post-punk, um, and then also a lot of soul and like salsa, boogaloo. Really, it just depends. Every, every time before a gig, I have to repack, um, so I have things. My, my boyfriend collects punk records, so that's actually why I like him so much. But uh, So we have like a ton of punk, and like, we collect that, and then like I have like a lot of soul, 80s, electro-funk, um, things to get the party going and help me clean my house. That's what I collect. What about you, Toya, or Jesse, too? Yeah, um, I collect, for spinning, I just do 45s, so I try to just stick within the funk, which is my favorite, and um, soul, soldies, and um, sweet soul, which I'm getting into more now. My boyfriend is a huge record collector, so in our home, there's just this huge library of music, so I haven't even really needed to collect other genres. I just kind of learn things through him. if I want to like go that route with like psychedelic stuff, kraut rock, like he's really into like all countries music of the seventies, like pretty fun. So um, yeah, but for myself, it's like funk, soul, some salsas and cumbias I'm getting into, and a little bit of world music if I can find them on forty fives. Super into like some Brazilian stuff that I've recently found. So yeah, yeah, boyfriend you? Brendan, he just hooked up this like rad. Uh, Purple Cumbia, like this like psychedelic compilation, yep. and he hooked, hooked me up with it recently. He's, they both have really good taste, but we've been like getting to know each other and sharing music with each other. But I guess for me, like I'm not, I have like a record collection, but it's probably not as vast as, as the these two ladies here. But um, I mostly like collect like lately. I feel like it's a lot of Brazilian music. I'm really on this like tropicalia kick. I do have cumbia. I have some salsa. I have punk stuff. I don't have many 45s, so I'm kind of like building that up right now. Um, but I usually rip my music <laughs> from uh, from online. So <laughs> so you mentioned before that you, Jesse and the Brujas have recently released a new mixtape. Tell me a little bit about that and uh, what can people expect from <clears throat> listening to the mixtape? Oh, cool. Well, it's so from Marinero, I mean, from doing that project, I um, in like October of last year of 2016, I put out this 
this mixtape called Cholofi. Like, I just thought it was, like, a really funny name. And, like, I called it Volume 1 for some reason. And, like, I didn't really necessarily have the foresight that I would continue to make two other volumes. But I put it out on SoundCloud, and my the response from making it, hearing what people thought of it, was pretty shocking because it seemed like people were really liking it. And um, so it inspired me to make a volume two and I and I put more work into it and I worked with a producer, a friend of mine from Mexico, from Francisco Madero. He helped me kind of mix it, which has a very strong sound and it's it's just very clean recording. Um, and he helped me kind of get that out. And uh, it had like, I put more effort into like, like with each volume, I've gotten better at and had it at making them. And I've also had a different theme or a different uh, way I wanted to go about making them. So the, for the second one, it was a little bit more, um, it had more of a narrative and it had the songs maybe had more of a theme and I incorporated music that was uh, pertinent to like my family or memories and uh, I even included like samples of my tia at, like at the end of this of the mix. And then for volume three, like I, I looked at that as like an opportunity to work with these women because like April has said, like coming from like a pretty male dominated music scene when it comes to like punk or rock or or DJing or what have you I think that uh they've they've definitely flourished in terms of playing shows in the Bay Area and, and it's not only them but it's just like this movement I feel like that is very like cool to watch right now it's like very powerful to see women doing more and like and bringing so much energy and it's so positive and they support each other and um I didn't I didn't necessarily like think about this at the time but I just wanted to work with them and then from working with them and uh communicating with April mostly through like DM on on Instagram we, we we she was open to like and Zakia were both open to working on volume three together so we they passed me some music and originally I like had this plan to like put out something for Valentine's Day so I hit them up I'm like give me some really sad music you know and they they passed me some tracks and the previous mixes I'd made were really slow and really haunting kind of like a, a lot of pretty songs like through the process of passing tracks back and forth, they started sending me more and more like kind of upbeat songs or funky songs. And it took less of like a romantic theme and more of like a, a little bit more of a soul theme too, which was cool because for me making these mixtapes and essentially just to describe them, like these mixtapes are like I take songs and I slow them down and I pitch the songs so they're like very androgynous sounding and I add a lot of effects to them and so they sound like really like stony, like really weird and trippy. And so um, I think they knew what they were getting involved with, with working with me and their selection of choice of songs. And um, in any case, this mixtape, what makes it different is it's not music that I've chosen. It's music that they've they've suggested. And I've I listened to like a mixtape they, they sent me and I cherry picked some parts. And like the volume two, I told another narrative, I think, and tried to make it stream together but uh the, i guess the thing that separates this from the others besides that is um i added more instruments and i added guitar and bass and drums and and i had them sing so mm. which is really cool because like you like april mentioned she she's played in bands and toya here hasn't mentioned this but she's an incredible singer so through the process of making this mixtape and realizing that they i wanted to capture their personality in it as well and there were certain parts of the mix that I, th- I could vision like backup vocals or like hushed singing or, or, or it ended up being a, an idea on their part, like a full on song that we ended up covering. Uh, Toya sang on like a full song with adding harmonies. Um, 
and using samples of their voices too. I really wanted to like capture some essence of their personality. So I guess the two things to expect is that it's it's a very like I think if you're if you're coming from a psychedelic background or if you like kind of psyche music, you'd be into it. If you like oldies, you'd like it. Um, it's a, I think it's a really solid set of songs that they sent me. It's really experimental too. At the same time, yeah, it was a pleasure to work on. I think for two reasons. I think the record is like or the mixtape is good to kind of document what these women are doing. Like, because I think articles can be written and interviews can be recorded, but I think like artistically, I wanted to like document like like something you know that they're yeah. doing and record it. Uh, we like getting in the studio with them. Like they were open to like. For, first of all, they didn't really know me. And I didn't second, even give him my number, and that's yeah. why he was DMing me until Zakia put him in a group message. I'm all, yeah. now he has my phone number. Yeah. He's gonna be hitting me up about music all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Which I do. You <laughs> do. So like, like they they were cool enough to be open with it. Like like not like having somewhat friends through friends and knowing each other through the community, barely. Like we, they were. I'm really pleased that they were open to letting letting me uh, work on this project with them or being open to it. And because uh, I'm really pleased with the outcome. Why was it released on cassette instead of other forms like CD or vinyl? <clears throat> well, luckily, um, some of the music I'd been making more recently for Marinero was, has been supported by this San Francisco label called Death Records. And it's mostly like bedroom jangly pop music, you know? But like, and when I gave, I was talking with Pedro, who is one of the, he's, he's a part of Death Records. He's one of like the main guys. Uh, he's a Latino dude and he was like very, he's like very supportive of what I'm doing. When I told him that I was working with B-Side Brujas on this mixtape, he, like, didn't even blink. He's like, oh, we're putting it out, like, right away. And so they they have this, like, monthly cassette club where they put out a cassette each month. And for that month, they decided to do our tape. And uh, so, I mean, if we had, like, a best-case scenario, we'd have CDs and, like, vinyl. and like. Yeah. But it was cool that someone was even, like, open to fronting it and putting it out on a cassette. So we're going to listen to some of the mixtape. Uh, what's your favorite song on it? And also, tell us about some of the artists you sample. Well, that's actually a secret. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, totally. Um, you guys won't, I mean. I'm trying to think. It's been a little while since I've listened, but I think the first two songs, Sharon Jones, um, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, she just recently passed away, but she's an amazing artist. And she didn't get famous, I don't think, until very late in her life. Um, so the first song, I think, is Sharon Jones' Better Things to Do, um, which is a breakup song. It's really good, but it's mm-hmm. also a beat. Um, and then I think the second song was Bobby Orosa, which is a, yeah, he's he's actually a modern uh, soul artist. So he is still, the song is new, and um, and that one is my favorite on Me the too. mix, I think. Um, also, we featured Lady Ray, which is the song that Toya sang over. It's called Make Me Over. Um, and she's also a new artist, and she still performs. She performs with, like, Lee Fields. I think she's on the same label. Um but yeah, the Bobby Rosa song is my favorite, and Me I too. think that's the second song. And just because it's so slowed down and it's so haunting, mm-hmm. it's already haunting as it is, but it's even more haunting, <laughs> and I, I love that. I listened to that one over and over again when you sent us yeah. what you had done. We, that's my favorite, too. <laughs>
woman than I have been Cause I don't think about way back when It takes two to love, but only one to leave It was you who did that dirty deed I got better things to do
listeners find out more information about all your projects you know soundcloud bank <laughs> if they follow me on instagram i mean they'll know that, that I'll, they'll post like five pictures a day yeah. <laughs> of yeah. like all these different projects it's like kind of ridiculous like i'm even posting one today and for what? like a new project and what's your instagram a uh, yesy vester yesy underscore vester and um yesy with a y yeah y y e s s y underscore v e s t e r but I'll usually have like some music in my bio, but like there's SoundCloud, there's Bandcamp. SoundCloud, it's Marinero, like all caps. And then for Bandcamp, uh, Francisco Madero, there's like a bunch of records, Marinero as well, and uh, Crisis Man or Violent Change, which is a really good band that I play in. What about you, ladies? Well, we have um, Instagram, Beside Brujas. We kind of post a lot of the things that we're doing, working on, and get tagged in most of the events that we do on that page. Um, we also have a SoundCloud. It's also B-Side Brujas. So thank you, April and Toya from B-Side Brujas and Jesse from all your projects <laughs> for being on the show with me tonight. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah thank you for so having much. us. That was Brenda Yeska's interview with the B-Side Brujas, April, Toya, Zakia, and Mo. They make up the B-Side Brujas. Jesse El Marinero was also part of that interview. Thank you, Brenda. Next, we're going to listen to an interview Nina Serrano did with Nathaniel Moore, who is the archivist for the Freedom Archives. And they have a new film premiering this Saturday, August 12th at 4 p.m. at the Roxy Theater. It's a Bay Area premiere. The film is called Symbols of Resistance. Let's take a listen to Nina's interview right now. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Our guest today is Nathaniel Moore. He's the archivist for Freedom Archives. You've heard Freedom Archives on this program before because it's such a rich resource for anyone doing any kind of historical media work. 
and they themselves produce media. And that's why Nathaniel Moore is here today to talk about their new film project called Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement. Bienvenido, Nathaniel Moore, to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you, Nina. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you here, and we want to hear more about Symbols of Resistance. I want to tell people that the Bay Area premiere is Saturday, August 12th at 4 p.m. at the Roxy Theater, which is at 16th at Valencia in San Francisco, and followed by a reception at 518 Valencia Street, where Freedom Archives is headquartered. Well, Nathaniel, tell us about Symbols of Resistance. What's it about? Sure. We're really excited for this film. We've been working on it for many years. Basically, Symbols of Resistance takes a look at a number of young people who were involved in the Chicano movement in the 1960s and 1970s. And by telling their stories, it really gives us an opportunity to kind of uncover aspects of the Chicano movement that are lesser known, bring lesser known stories to light, and really focus on issues of land and police brutality and connections with other liberation movements that the Chicano movement really played an important role. And that's still true that these are still vital issues in the Chicano movement. Very much so. Definitely one of the missions of the Freedom Archives and all of our work, but especially in our media pieces, is to connect issues that are still affecting communities today with historical movements, organizations, and people that worked on similar issues. Well, I myself have been part of Freedom Archives, our radio collective in the 70s. We were actually one of the first Latino media collectives called Comunicación Atzlan, produced about a five-foot shelf of materials that are today in the Freedom Archives, we're very proud to say. And it's a wonderful resource. For those who don't know, um, all the materials in the Freedom Archives are actually searchable on our database. So if you go to the website search.freedomarchives.org and look up uh, the collective that Nina just mentioned, Comunicación Atzlan, you'll actually find over 200 recordings in the Freedom Archives. Some of those recordings are digitized, and those can serve as really wonderful primary source documents for people doing research or just trying to understand the history of the Chicano community. This is not your first media product, right? No, it's not. About maybe five years ago, we released COINTELPRO 101, which has been a very important film that talked about government repression against some of the major movements in the 1960s and 70s in the United States, also in Puerto Rico. One of the things that we noticed through that film was that while people were more familiar with some of the repression against the Black Panthers and different elements of the anti-war movement, the Chicano movement was relatively underrepresented even in COINTELPRO 101. So one of the things that really kind of sparked our interest in making this film was to go back and try to tell some of those stories that we slightly were able to uncover in COINTELPRO 101, but not necessarily give the in-depth treatment that they deserved. I know COINTELPRO 101 has been a very vital education tool over these last years. I think it explains to people what happened in the past and the dangers that are ever more present today for people working for peace and justice. I wonder if you could also tell us 
about the filmmakers? I know you were part of the editing team, but could you tell us about the people who did the shoot? Sure. So there are actually five of us who made this film, and all of us played different roles as the process went on. But part of that process was actually to go to Colorado and to film, firstly, parts of a commemoration event that was held in uh, 2014 that marked the 40th anniversary of Los de Boulder, which are a group of young activists that we cover in our film. And then through that event, we actually made some separate trips to Colorado to follow up and do some additional interviews. Some of the people that were really uh, influential in that process, and actually also in the founding of the Freedom Archives, were Claude Marx and Andreas Alegria. And so they are two of the five of us on the film team. And one of the things that's really interesting about their positionality around this film is that uh, they actually knew a lot of the activists that we interviewed and that we talked about and were active in those actual movements. And so, again, one of the things that we really want to focus on at the Freedom Archives is to show the continuity between those doing movement work today and those doing movement work in the past and to really bring those stories and show the similarities and differences as well, but really use them as foundation for what can people today who are working on the same issues use from the past to kind of help push our movements along. You mentioned Andres Alegria and Claude Marx. Both of them worked here at KPFA. Yes. Yes, in the 60s and 70s and left a, a wonderful legacy. And both were active around the Latino issues of their day and still are. Yeah, it was really wonderful. One of the things that we're going to do after the premiere on the 12th is we're going to have a reception uh, at 518, which, you know, you mentioned. That reception is going to give us an opportunity to not honor, not only honor some of the participants who are actually in the film who will be joining us from Colorado, but also to, again, kind of just create a community space that really shows uh, intergenerational movement work that is really exemplified by the Chicano movement. Uh, one of the themes that's definitely present in our movie is uh, the theme of family and community, and I think that very much so our filmmaking process kind of mirrors that. Well, 518 is just like maybe a block or a block and a half from the Roxy Theater. It's right so. around the corner. So for those of you who want to just stick around a little bit after the movie, it's a real easy walk, and we'd, we'd love to have as many of you there as possible. Well, I want to remind people that that is going to be taking place, that Bay Area premiere of Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement on Saturday, August 12th at 4 p.m., at the Roxy Theater, that 16th at Valencia, which happens to be also right by the 16th Street BART station in San Francisco. Very convenient. Absolutely. Hope to see everyone there, and thank you so much, Nathaniel Moore of Freedom Archives. Thank you, Nina. Blessed. And that was Nina Serrano interviewing Nathaniel Moore, who's the archivist for the Freedom Archives. They've got the new film out, Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicana movement, happening this weekend, Saturday, August 12th. 
And finally tonight, with more great stuff happening this weekend, this time in the theater, Nina Serrano sat down with Cherie Moraga and Celia Herrera to talk about their brand new play, which premieres this Saturday, August 12th, The Mathematics of Love. Let's take a listen to that now. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Our guests today are the celebrated author, playwright, director, essayist, teacher, activist, Cherie Moraga, and her collaborator, artist and teacher, Celia Herrera, conceptual artist, set, and costume designer. They are here to tell us about their new theater production, opening soon on August 10th at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. It's called The Mathematics of Love and runs through August 27th. I'm going to begin first with Cherie Moraga. Cherie, welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're very excited about this visit. We're very familiar with your work over the years as a poet, activist, writer, teacher, and playwright, of course. Tell us about this new play, Mathematics of Love. Well, Mathematics is uh, a long time in coming. It's a play I started several years ago, and life interrupted it, and as did our previous collaboration, New Fire, to put things right again, which was the last we, the play we did at, at Brava. The play has been a long time in coming because it was generated, I think, first out of the fact of my, my mother's Alzheimer's and that opportunity to sort of witness how she remembered in those, in those last years of her life. For me, and she was a wonderful cuentista, for me, it made me reconsider questions of memory and what we think is dementia is sometimes quite illuminated, that they tell you things they never told you before, they give up their censor. And also inspired by her is sort of her, her own stories of working in Tijuana and during the, the casino period in the late 20s and early 30s before Cárdenas came in. And she has a lot of cuentos. And so her stories and the question of, of memory and and California memory. I grew up in L.A. I grew up in like two blocks from the Mission de San Gabriel. And a lot of return as she kind of left the world, my own mind went into a lot of places of return, not just in my own biography, but also us as Mexicanos here in California. So it took me back to the mission period, and it took me even further back to questions of this encuentro between Malinche and and Cortez. And so there's a whole kind of story, time-traveling thing that happens in this play where fiction completely takes over. And I think as a Chicano feminist for many years, I've been writing and questioning about originally the Chicano sort of patriarchal take on Malinche and the Mexicano take on that. And we as Chicana feministas in the 70s, you know, a lot of, lot of women elder than me that, that had opened up, Alede del Castillo opened up these questions about Malinche. And so somehow the play came together in me in this way that this elder lady named Peaches, who's supposed to be demented but is quite illuminated, is able to travel through her own time, her own past, and she meets Malinche. Malinche appears actually in 1998 in the Hotel Biltmore and very near where I grew up, and they have to settle 
a 500-year reckoning as Mexicanas, Mexicanas, you know, entre ellas. So that's kind of, that, I mean, that's a lot of stuff, but I felt it was an amazing opportunity to think about our herencia as Mexicanas and really to be able to continue sort of what I always have felt has sort of been my manda is to try to really put the Mexicana center stage and her concern center stage and to to know that the, our, our feminism as Chicanas is integral to our wealth and health as a, as a pueblo. And why did you choose the name Peaches for this protagonist figure who's kind of the stand-in for your mom? Her story goes way, way differently than my mom's actual story. But Peaches, actually, is because I had a tia that her nickname was Peaches, and I thought that was the greatest name. I just liked it. And it's also of that generation. You know, a lot of black women, too, in their history, they were like the Nina Simone song where she mentions one version of the the African-American woman being called Peaches. I just think it's a great name. I like names like that, you know, Cookie and Candy and you know, Kuka and all of that. I just think they're great Chicano names. This is quite amazing, this storyline, because I think we have all in our readings come up against Malinche, 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 and she's bad or she's good. Mm -hmm. And so this is now yet another version. And it's it's certainly about time. You know, I hope that with this play, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm looking forward to, that you have settled it for (laughs) once. Because I want to see a feminist outcome to this old patriarchal stuff. I mean, it's just too long. Okay, hermana, yes. (laughs) Too long. And Celia, I want to address this to you. I've been a devotee of live theater most of my life. And... I was raised in New York, so I got to see the best of it as a child and then got to participate in it and create my own. But I never have heard of a conceptual art set except possibly when I looked at Soviet theater and looked at pictures of Mayakovsky set. That's the closest mm. I could come to thinking of. What would a what would such a conceptual art set look like? And what would the costumes be like? Would you please speak on that, Celia? Well, perhaps it's the uh, use of the word uh, conceptual because it has its own meaning in art, you know, history or Western art history. But what Sheree and I uh, have been talking about is that uh, visualizing uh, California that takes into account um, the people who have been here. So it takes into account the history of uh, its origin of Native people and the continued presence of Native people, which tend to go um, invisible. You know, we tend to relegate our thought of Native people and our visuals into the past. So as Cherie's working, and many times her pieces are set in California, uh, my job is to imagine that as a present. And, uh, that, and because her mo- pieces also move historically, they, this one moves into three, four different realms of history, with 16th century, meeting 18th century, meeting early 19th century, or 20th century, and then 1998. So it's sort of bringing all those pieces that can exist together if we look at it from the perspective of, uh, of the indigenous peoples. If we think and, uh, and look at an indigenous perspective, then all those times are all bound within uh, the colonial period, but then move this way of the colonial period 
end that way of the colonial period. So um, looking at Mission San Gabriel, looking at the Biltmore Hotel, the roads in between, that was my job in terms of creating the space that can actually hold the characters as they move through time, and also then addressing them accordingly. So I kind of take my key as indigenous perspective and then begin working that way. Though I'm not working alone, I have a wonderful production folks Dorothy Martinez, who's a costume designer herself and is building some of the the costumes, and Tanya Orellanes, who's also working in the set, building the ideas that I've come up with and then manifesting them. So it's a wonderful opportunity. Well, you use this term building referring to the costumes. Expand on that, because I think of costuming more as sewing than building. Could you tell us about that? Well, I think that the costumers see themselves as artists, almost as sculptors, because they look at the body and the idea. Working with Dorothy has been fantastic, because she looks at the character. She's done the research, looking at how this character is going to move, what's going to need to happen. So it's not just about sewing, it's making sure that the costumes can come on and off in a second and everything hold together and have the idea and presence of the writer. So in the set, often a set is a backdrop that's just been painted on, but what's this conceptual angle of the set? Well, it's how to bring the California forward in native thought. So it had to do with the floor, what's underneath, where they're sitting, because it all it takes place in the Biltmore lobby. So we began to think of the Biltmore Lobby as the colonial structure that has come into this day that's sitting on Tongva land, the original peoples of L.A., with all these other folks moving in and out of it. So uh, the design of floor, what's overhead, the structure that's holding it, and also the exteriors, which I think conceptually for us, it isn't just the inside where everything's taking place, but also what surrounds it, what's holding up the colonial structure. You know, as I listen to you, I get the sense of a enormous and deep collaboration. The way that what you, Celia, are talking about, the way you realize Cherie's words reflects a, a huge, deep, deep connection. Like, you two have really worked as one by now. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's well, extraordinary. We've butted heads a little bit along the way with, you know, with these ideas. I'm not trained in theater. You know, I come at it as a visual artist. But so, you're trained in listening. Yes. You're, I listen to Cherie's place. Yeah. You're a deep, deep listener to have come up with the thoughts that you're expressing here about her words. How did you feel about that? Well, Celia, Celia and I have known each other quite well for a long time, and it really was, you know, 10, 10 years into our relationship as artists and knowing her work and, and she knowing mine, that I invited her uh, to work on The Hungry Woman. That was like in 2005. And The Hungry Woman is a Mexican Madea. And so in that, it was Celia who helped me understand. I had all these images that were from the Mexica or the, the Aztec imagery. And she helped me realize that actually the point of view of the play, as opposed to these Mexica figures coming in and out, that they were actually the point of view of the play. That was an indigenous point of view looking at these contemporary characters. It's actually set in the future. So that little switch, like that little flip, 
from instead of looking from a Western point of view in you know the Western state to to flip it to look from to look at these events that are happening to us as Rasa here in the United States from an indigenous point of view. So the whole thing, the whole play then ends up being a critique of colonialism, no matter what you're talking about, right? No matter what the story is. So that to me was a, a really brilliant insight and it's something that I write about, but I never thought about how you kind of make that 3D on the stage and Celia was the key to that. And so all my plays since then, if I'm directing, you know, she's been the collaborator with it. That's also quite remarkable that you're both the playwright and the director. How did you find that experience? Well, it's very, it's very challenging. And partly, I think, the specificity of uh, being a Chicano writer and having sort of the politica and the perspective I have, that it's not necessarily that easy of a thing to find directors that can can realize that. And also, we are not, you know, as Chicanas, we do not get a lot of kind of main stage and regional theater opportunity. There is a great prejudice against us. You know, I've been doing this for many, many, many years, you know, since the 90s. And sometimes it felt even more easier to do it in the 90s, that there was more interest in our work. And I think a lot more Chicanas are being produced now, which is really good. And I think that when you have a particular politic that does critique the West, that does critique, you know, mainstream America, it's not like Berkeley reps knocking down the door to get you, right? And so I think partly I've, it's a skill I've had to learn to develop. And when somebody says she wasn't trained in theater, I, I became a playwright out of Puras Ganas. You know, I had the great fortune to have my my first play to begin to work with Maria Elena Fornes in New York. She created a whole generation of Latino playwrights who are now teaching out of her, her manner in many, many ways. But to have her... That was a great gift, and I think it, I saw her, that she directed her plays because she knew what she wanted, and that gave me an incredible amount of courage, I think, that if she could do it, and she was, you know, very chingona, you know, and I thought, I, I will do it too, and it's hard, it's very hard, but we are blessed with a beautiful cast this time around. I mean, just, you know, Rose Portillo's in the lead, and she's, she's as Peaches, and she was in, you know, Zoot Suit fame, you know, when she played the love interests of Henry Reina to now being the abuela in, in, in L.A., or the, in the mama in L.A. So I've worked with her for several years now on this project, and it's a, it's a great realization. I want to say brava and bravo to the Brava Theater because they have gone out of their way to support Latino playwrights and themes at the Brava Theater, right there in Absolutely. the heart of the mission. That's right, yes. And you can see Mathematics of Love... Cherie, why don't you fill us in on the dates and the tickets for this wonderful play? Great. We have only 12 shows, so we have previews happening on Thursday and Friday, August 10th and 11th. Opening night with the reception is Saturday, August 12th. The play will run through the 27th of August. We have shows basically Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday matinees. And if you go to the just to brava.org, and you press Mathematics of Love, you will get all the information you need. It's also on Facebook. And tickets, you just say purchase tickets, and it'll it'll give you the options. Of particular interest might be, too, that we do have talkbacks on Thursday and Sunday, Thursday, August 17th and 24th, and then on the Sunday matinees, the 20th and the 27th. So it, uh, And I believe also the 13th. So just on the website, it has everything you need to know. Thank you so much. Sheree Moraga and Celia Herrera. Hope to see you 
at the play. I'll be planning on going to oh, the Oh, great. Well, we're glad. Thank you so much for your time. And bless it. That was Nina Serrano speaking with Cherie Moraga and Celia Herrera about their brand new play, The Mathematics of Love, premiering at the Brava Theater this Saturday, August 12th. That's all the time we have for this evening. Thank you so much for listening to La Raza Chronicles. Thanks again for donating to this station during their summer fun drive. Much appreciated. We'll catch you next Tuesday on La Raza Chronicles. My name's Vilma V. Have a great night and have a great weekend. Stay tuned now for Avacha and the Kubop Bebop and the Musical Truth.